Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clothes. Wow. Damn, I'm a young media magnate journalist media type. guru that's funny there's i was just talking to my roommate about like coincidentally having like big hit youtube videos because he shared with me that like one thing he and his brother posted in like early youtube days that has like a million views now wow. is like um it's a clip that's like the ringtone from Adam Sandler's bedtime stories. <laughs> and uh, it's the funny thing is, it's not actually the right one <laughs> from the movie. Damn. It's just a, a random ringtone? No, it's like it's like a different version of it from what's in the movie. Oh, like, shit. It's like a close approximation. So like most of the YouTube comments are just like, no, this isn't it. This is wrong. Wow. Or just, I love this movie. The classic. Well, yeah, I do love that movie. <laughs> I've seen that before, too, while looking up um, scenes from The Love Guru. Um, the, there's a scene where they sing more than words, and I, I thought I was watching... You know, just a, a normal clip of the movie as I usually would watch that clip. But uh, mm. actually, halfway through, and I don't know how I didn't notice this before, someone, a fan, had edited themselves in um, <laughs> as, you know, um, singing up the backup vocals for him. So, like, because uh, there's an Indian character in the film that uh, is a friend of Mike Myers. So, there was another Indian fella photoshopping himself in, pretending wow. he was that guy. It's pretty sick. That. <laughs> <laughs> That is useful information if we've ever... I mean, like, we reviewed The Love Guru maybe 85 episodes ago. Um, but I think it's always good to have a uh, a, a David Foster Wallace-esque footnote to, <laughs> to wrap around the review a, a 10,000 pages later, you know? Well, we're always learning. We're always returning with more knowledge. Exactly. I think that's what this podcast is really about. And this podcast is Extended Clip, and it's episode 93, and I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm at Berlane 71 <laughs> Um, I'm JT the Journalist White. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Berlain is a good... <laughs> That's killing me now. <laughs> yeah, I love Seinfeld. Berlain's probably my favorite character. <laughs> I need a Berlain type bitch. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we are here at the 71st annual Berlin Ale, um, the Berlin Film Festival, and... Like uh, past years in the festival, we were greeted in the early part of the year with a new film by Hong Sang-soo. Uh, one of the only worthwhile films that came out last year uh, premiered at Berlin just as kind of COVID was sweeping the globe. Uh, you know, The Woman Who Ran. And, you know, I didn't even get to see that one until about a month ago, uh, maybe a little longer. But that's the difference this year. Extended clip is also at Berlin. Yeah, you know, I, I for anyone who, you know, is wondering, like, and we're getting the full film festival experience, obviously, but uh, if anyone's wondering, you know, ah, like, all these people that are going to film festivals, like, I'm missing out, like, you know, damn, like, it's like, I mean, I'm glad, I'm happy with the stuff we saw, but it's, you, you could do without <laughs> watching some of these movies, you know what I mean? You, you're fine, and if you see anyone bragging about it, they're not they're 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 kind of hyping that up. Yeah, no. I think it's our our responsibility 
as now journalists and critics is that like people get like so pissed off like around festival time like these like fucking media class bozos coming in hyping up movies that you know you're not going to be able to see for months and i think it's our responsibility to lie about all the movies we've seen and just make up details <laughs> so that to, to throw a little confusion into the mix there I think it is truly our duty to tell it like it is, though. As the the media stooge class has, you know, lobbed darts at us from a distance, from a safe distance where we can't strike back from them. Uh, now we're among their ranks. I, you know, we walked out of Petite Mama. We were having, we were laughing our little butts off, and David Ehrlich was sobbing. And I was yeah, like, look, look at that fucking nerd. I was walking out with a clothespin over my nose <laughs> as Ehrlich was uh, just like pulling hanky and hanky out of his uh, back pocket. Yeah, that's that's what we do if we dislike a movie. We leave the theater with a clothespin on our nose. Yeah, Alex <laughs> Billington. Uh, we actually. You know, I had a little altercation with him at that screening. He he did call the police on me because throughout the entire screening, I kept doing my parody song about Petite Maman. I don't know if you guys know the Whisper song by the Ying Yang Twins, but I kept going, you know, what's up, Petite Mama? Let me whisper in here. <laughs> and uh, I was doing it much louder than that, though, so he was not happy about that. Yeah, he, he didn't get it because you weren't whispering it, so it didn't <laughs> quite make sense. <laughs> but uh, also, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, that's why we wanted to go to the festival, you know, beef watch, see if anyone tried to step to us and just let, you know, we are fucking armed. We, we, we are concealed carry in these motherfucking theaters. So if anyone wants to come to us, these guns are registered and it's fine. You don't, there's no need to talk to us. So what we're going to do is rather than have like a daily dispatch, like a lot of uh, reporters from festivals would do, we're kind of just saving it up. We've been watching shit every day, like everyone else, you know, uh, taking in the Berlin lifestyle, learning about the atrocities that took place here. <laughs> That's what they do at the, the start of the film festival. And they're like, all right, we don't want to land acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah. It's, ver- it's a German version of a land acknowledgement. <laughs> it's like, we're not going to beat around the bush, you know. You could pick up any history book and you could see what we did and we don't plan on doing it again. <laughs> so we hope this film festival is kind of a, an olive branch. <laughs> like that's good. That's yeah. that's positive. It's that, that's that's you know people complain about things nowadays. That's a positive change that's going on in the world. Absolutely. So uh we're going to release a dispatch like at the end of the festival kind of with our collective thoughts, not just on the festival on the whole, but individual films. You know, we're, we're recording bits as we go. Uh, so look forward to that. But for this week's main episode, uh, we, we wanted to bring you a double feature from Berlin. Two picks from the festival. One of my favorite filmmakers on earth, uh, his new film, Introduction. Yes, I am talking about Hong Sang-soo. And the B feature is actually a, a breakthrough feature from our colleague in podcasting. Uh, it, it's The Scary of 61st, directed by Dasha Nekrasova. Uh, so, you know, outside of the context of all the rigmarole of the festival, how, how did you guys take to this double feature? You know, just as the double feature itself, you have Hong, seasoned veteran, who's kind of, you know... Uh, you know, messing with his form, you know, a little bit, you know, just kind of refining the ways that, you know, people are already enjoying him. And then, you know, we have uh, Dasha, you know, a young up-and-comer in the, in the film world. And, uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's always interesting to compare someone who's so far ahead and someone who's, you know, just beginning that directorial 
journey. <laughs> no, that that feels apt. It's like I mean, Hong, an amazing man. I think. I mean, we haven't talked about we haven't done a hong yet have we no we just kind of like mention him and michael mann we just kind of talk about how much we love and stand and how much they ride for us but we don't yeah. actually review their movies um i mean someday we'll do some more hongs hopefully someday soon but dasha like a similar person beaten up by the media class and i think it was a lot of people are not going to do are not going to be able to separate the podcast persona, the online world, all these other journalists that are here. They're just they, they have Twitter brain, and we just I want to cut through the fluff yeah. and get down. Is this a about damn the drama? Good, like it's about the movies, <laughs> folks. Yeah, you know that actually is a really good comparison uh, because Hong Sang Soo, like outside of the cinephile circuit, who praises him, you know, for. His consistency, his formal approach, uh, of course, now his collaboration with Kim Min-hee, much of the gossip media of uh, Korea is very anti-Hong Sang-soo because his relationship with Kim Min-hee came out of an extramarital affair. And so, you know, in in the same way that soft left uh, Twitter people will quote tweet the works of one of these directors uh you know gossipy weebs will get mad at the works (laughs) of the other one but uh the thing is the the personal life does come through in the films it's not so simple as separating you know uh hong's work with kim min he is very autobiographical uh dasha says some words in this film that she says in her podcast if you've ever listened to it and it's like oh i know that from that you know mm-hmm. um so that's I where know. i learned those words from well no, <laughs> i mean like for, turns yeah. of phrases and stuff i, I don't i'm mean, not yeah. trying to single out any words uh <laughs> Clip, just a supercut there <laughs> yeah. all the times anyone says retard in that movie um anyway introduction by hong sang su there, there, there's two like numbered title cards early in introduction, uh, and it's reminiscent of another Hong, a Virgin Stripped Bear by her Bachelors, another black and white Hong Sang Soo movie that uses one and two as indicators that aren't necessarily uh, tied to what a chapter one and a chapter two might usually entail. Rather than like setting up a structural conceit, and we all know Hong is like the king of playing structural narrative games, uh, this kind of works to establish different perspectives on our protagonist, Young Ho. Uh, the first couple of uh, scenes, you know, number one, we see his parents. And I I was really taken aback by this. We open with his father saying a prayer in his office where he works as a doctor. Uh, He does acupuncture. And just like seeing, you know, the classic white coat uh, on a character that opens a Hong movie was like, oh, my God. When's there going to be a director? Well, I I, I need (laughs) (laughs) That'd be sick if just uh, Hong just, you know, took one of his scripts that's, you know, very filmmaking heavy and just just insert, put that that in the medical world. Yeah, just made a straight up medical (laughs) drama. (laughs) I mean, when I saw that and it's it. I mean, this isn't where the, the film leads, but, you know, I see I see the the doctor praying, you know, please get me out of this, this situation. It's like, oh, another, you know, classic Hong protagonist, you know, in over his head, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, getting into the bullshit. But uh, I kind of like how, uh, I don't know, that, that, that 
that opening character and the father is not the main character and kind of like the periphery role he takes in this movie. Yeah, and so then we go to the second segment, uh, I guess, which is, and we should say that both of these segments, like the numbers come fairly early in the film. It's not like this is the structure of the film. It's not a, a right now, wrong then scenario where the film is split in half. Nothing even close to that. I, I think number two comes up around 15 minutes into this 67 or so minute runtime. Uh, but then we see his troubled lover. Uh, and uh, much like the woman who ran his last film, we kind of leave the male perspective that Hong films are always so dominated by to hang out with the ladies for 10, 15 minutes and, you know, indirectly learn about this guy uh, through this trio of characters. And uh, it's it's a really remarkable scene where Kim Min-hee is like renting out this room and she looks entirely different than she has in the last few Hong movies uh, between the glasses and the new haircut, basically on to me unrecognizable, but also terrible stream quality at the moment. And I mean, you don't see her like head on a whole lot. Most of the time she's like sort of obscured or looking out the window. Yeah. And speaking of looking out the window, uh, there's a scene where the mom of this girlfriend character who is in quite a few Hong Sang Su movies. Uh, her name is so young. She like sizes up this window to smoke at. There's like this long shot of her looking up the window and it's like, damn, what is she thinking about? Like there, there, there's some deep contemplation. She kind of peers around the corner and looks at a window and is like, yeah, I'm going to smoke here. <laughs> no, I love, you know, I was, because I think there's a couple ways to read this movie and with like the mother character at first and kind of how she's obviously, you know, somewhat judgmental of her daughter and stuff like that and how you could kind of see that in, you know, the next part of the movie, how uh, kind of, uh, you know, you have young Ho and him, you know, a meeting with that actor and the actor kind of gives him, you know, some shit too, which is an amazing scene. But I, you know, I was kind of thinking like, is this kind of like Hong working out some, like some, some generational difference. And I yeah. think, and I think, yeah. and I think so for, for, you know, for sure. Like that's definitely there, but also it's like, you could just kind of read it as through like, you know, the conceit of perspective that Hong is establishing. Cause it's like, it's really all the perspective of young Ho. Cause that the great, you know, with, you know, the scene with the, the girlfriend, and her mother and how young ho is integrated in, into that scene how he's kind of like a burden you know the reason that uh her, the daughter has to leave the mother and it's it's very funny just uh I don't know, like being a part of some, it shows how you could be a part of someone's lives without even meeting them, just, you know, kind of ruining someone's day, <laughs> just through your kind of odd behavior. <laughs> yeah, no, the the interactions in this almost feel like strained when they don't need to happen, you know, like uh, Young Ho's involvement in the, the three ladies get, you know, setting uh, her up with an apartment and just kind of getting the lay of the land here. And it, it, it's funny because the, the stuff in Berlin is like almost indistinguishable uh, from the stuff in Korea at first because the film feels so interior. It, it's like later on we get some shots at a beach that are wonderful, uh, but a recurring motif in this film, uh, especially, and I think it happens three times all in the second half. Young Ho says to his friend who pops up at, you know, around the midway point, he points out how beautiful a sight is. 
and Hong will just zoom in on their faces and we do not see the sight. <laughs> and there are some other Hog movies where something like that happens and it's like a delay and then you get that long ass pan to see what they're looking at. Uh, the, the film List has a great example of that where after just watching two women talk about a boat for a couple of seconds, you get a crazy 180 degree pan into like this gorgeous composition of a boat. This one, yeah, you just see the guys that are looking. <laughs> uh, and then eventually, though, uh, we eventually do see what they were looking at. And briefly, we see a shot of uh, one of these characters' footprints walking out of the ocean and onto the sand. And we just see the waves taking away these footprints for a couple of seconds. It's in, in a film that, as I said, is so internal and full of just people's faces talking to each other. That moment of poetry is just like you know stuck mm -hmm. with me more than anything that was said in the movie yeah there are a lot of like i don't know in terms of hong exploring like generational stuff i think there's a lot that deals with like youthful unease that happens i mean both um young ho and his like girlfriend are both like very sort of like hesitant and like especially around elders and i think that relates to a lot of problems and i feel like young ho's like eagerness and uncertainty about his path ultimately is what undoes his relationship with his girlfriend by like like putting himself too much on her by like making that bold decision to follow her to berlin and then say like oh no i think i'll like move here to do school as well and like the moment that i really loved in it that was like a very specific like second is where they're like young ho and his girlfriend are hugging and you can just like barely see her eyes sort of like over his shoulder and Hong kind of I think zooms a little bit beforehand <laughs> and it's like that feels like the moment she knows the relationship like isn't working and it's just such like a beautiful like unspoken like moment of clarity that you get to watch happen. Yeah and like you were talking about youthful unease and I, yeah I think Hong's having fun with that because it is. Like, I think both uh, Young Ho and his girlfriend both say the phrase, like, oh, you could speak in informal speak to me. I'm yeah. younger. And this happens a lot yeah. in, like, earlier Hong films, okay. I feel like. like I, I, this is something that has been said before in his movies, but I feel like the last couple of movies haven't had that. And maybe it's because he's focused more on middle-aged characters. I mean, Hotel by the River had three more young characters and an older character, mm -hmm. but... Uh, I, I feel like this is his biggest disparity in age uh, in terms of like the whole cast that he's had in quite a few films, I think. So, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the formal and informal speech being given that much attention is always like, I don't know, that, that was always interesting to me. Yeah. And I think what the, the kind of the joke of it is, is that like um, these these young people are not. They, they, they're not very casual, you know what I mean? And like when they speak to adults, they almost, I mean, I don't know about the exactness with, you know, Korean and informal and formal speak, but it seems like they're pretty, you know, uptight around these adults, you know, yeah. and would, you know, it's kind of, they're trying to present themselves as casual, but they still have kind of like the youthful unsuredness of themselves that like the, yeah, the older people do come off as very confident in this yeah. movie, very sure, except... I guess more of just the actor and the mother character, because mm -hmm. of course we we see the dad 
praying to praying <laughs> get out to of God, a situation. Yeah. I mean, they're like they're. I feel like confident in who they are, but all sort of no, generally yeah. frustrated. Yeah, definitely. yeah. I mean, I think the best scene in terms of generational difference is with the older actor. He's played by Ju Bong Ki, and he's been in like a couple of Hong films. Um, I think he was in a Bong Joon Ho movie, um, but he he's a somewhat familiar face. And he is an old time actor. He's an experienced actor, you know, like a real legend. Uh, and he really, he fits the bill perfect. You know, he has that perfect, like aged face, you know, uh, and it's blocked perfect to this lunch scene where it's like a three on one <laughs> confrontation almost with young ho's mom and young ho also brought a friend along with him who was just like who's this guy we didn't invite him <laughs> yeah completely useless doesn't yeah. add to conversation no that that i mean i thought that was brilliant like just that blocking technique you know built out of you know a good like uh, character moment you know that, I mean just like I was saying you know with the youthful knees like him going to sit with his friend instead with the actor across like a normal person he's act- yeah. acting like you know s- school kids and like <laughs> that that it's such like Hong banks on that blocking throughout that scene and that and that's what makes it you know partially so funny yeah so Young Ho you know he had these aspirations of being an actor but gave up and uh, he also the older actor made them promise that they would not get drunk and he turns into this really stern like type of guy to say you know you can drink but I swear to God if you get drunk <laughs> I get that I get that he's so hard on them it's so funny and then of course you know time passes they get drunk in usual Hong fashion there's a cut that you know takes you don't know how many hours or bottles later that cut represents but they're they're fucking sloppy and uh he just lays into them and you just see like spit coming across the screen but it's because young ho reveals something so like just absolutely cucked about himself (laughs) the reason he can't act is that he had this moment of crisis where he had to kiss a girl and he just couldn't do it because he had a girlfriend and the guy's like, you couldn't do a kiss scene? And he just, it's one of the most incredible drunken tirades uh, I've ever seen, like in a Hong Sang Soo movie. One of my favorite scenes from him in recent years, for sure. Uh, as I said earlier, the spit flying across the screen <laughs> just doesn't <laughs> even begin to describe how intense he gets at that moment. I mean, it's so funny because in terms of how this movie like relates to like being like young and like sort of figuring out like your set of principles and sort of being shaky on that it's funny that the one thing young ho is like really defined about there in that moment (laughs) and knows that he's gonna get shit for is saying that he feels like um (laughs) embracing a woman if it's fake is morally wrong (laughs) (laughs) so the the best line in the movie from young ho is i'm a man when I embrace a woman, it's real. <laughs> I love how that's that's done. You know, I think Hong kind of punches in, and like you, could, it's just a two shot of Young Ho saying that, and then his mother right next to him, just kind of reacting, just like Jesus Christ. And she's is, like so drunk, yeah. too. Like she's the most out of it of anyone. Just so, just leaned over completely, arm across yeah. the table at one point. So such a fantastic scene, and uh, then the two boys just 
absolutely embarrassed just run out of the restaurant <laughs> with the tail between their legs essentially and go sleep it off in the car where we get just a classic Hong dream scene uh, where Young Ho goes out onto the beach and he sees his old lover and she's, you know, on the beach alone at day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but they have a nice little talk and uh, it's it's quite beautiful, but you know, in Hong movies, when things go that well, that's your that's your cue that it's a dream is when lovers uh, just reconnect without any problems whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it's like beautiful in the moment, but like w- realizing it's a fantasy or like a dream, it kind of is like fucked up on like yeah. young hoes. Yeah. Like, oh, it totally inf- is informed by yeah. his perspective and how much he wants to just like dominate her life. Basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that scene's great because I, I was really enveloped into this movie. Hong really got me with this one and I wasn't even really thinking oh is this a dream or not I was just kind of taking the scene as is and then kind of towards the back end the dialogue between Young Ho and his girlfriend you know it's it's like him saying like I'm gonna make it all better like yeah. all, all me and you realize oh yeah, yeah. this is like, it's like in Hill of Freedom when yeah. the old lady says you really beat the bad guy <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I love I love that dream sequence because it is like it's a uh, you know, identifying like some sort of, you know, hubris young ho has, but it's like, you know, not, not, you know, your, you know, traditional alpha hubris, you know, it's classic, um, you know, he obviously fan, you know, fancies himself as a, a romantic of some sorts and him, you know, kind of having this dream that reaffirms his vision and then having to wake up in the car with, with your bro. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a rude awakening. Well, I mean, it's just so fucking funny because it's like part of that fantasy is that like, she's going blind (laughs) and like her, her, like her boyfriend in Berlin, like left her and he's like, Oh yeah, he's a, he's a real piece of shit. He left you for another Korean girl. (laughs) Oh, and before we wrap up, I should say that the the pattern I mentioned of the boys sightseeing is broken at the very end when Young Ho sees his mom on the balcony and uh, the two boys are looking up and then we do get like kind of just a reverse shot, I guess, uh, very rare for Hong to play into classic shot logic that well, but uh yeah, just like a really flat shot of like the face of the hotel. Um, and I believe that's the final image. Or does it go back to the beach for the final image? I feel like it goes back to the beach. Then, kids but hey, look, it, yeah. they, you know, we got we got to be honest. We're, we're we don't got a file of this. We go to the theater, we watch it, we come out of the theater, and we record. Exactly. I mean, hey, we're fucking we're slamming down easily fucking ten to twelve movies a day at this festival. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not even logging all of them. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> if we get the plot details a little messy, it's because we're watching so many important art house films. So don't get on our back. Yeah, so I just jump between two theaters, like running back and forth <laughs> for a full eighty minute runtime. Um, I really love this movie, though. It's like it's it's hard to differ. It's funny. There's like five different types of four star Hong Sang Soo movies. He's made so many movies, and they're all within that like four to five range for me, pretty much. There's a few three and a halfs in there, but I'm gonna give this one four bullets. And I I think it's it's a really funny movie. Uh, I feel like the black and white can be deceiving. Maybe we didn't even say that this film is in black and white. We didn't. Uh, after the woman who ran was in color. The black and white can be deceiving, but I think films like this and the day after, he kind of teases out comedy like that will 
take a few scenes to develop even or take a very long scene to develop and there are also very you know kind of dark emotional moments in these black and white movies as well and you know he just knows how to shoot black there's very few people who i give my seal of approval for uh with digital black and white cinematography but hong sang Soo is one of the few so uh no yeah like in terms of like the black and white like i'm thinking of like maybe like the end of like the doctor scene where he's smoking out in the snow. I mean, that scene is so much better because it's in black and white, but yeah, I mean, this is probably, you know, and I think you probably have maybe five to 10 more Hongs on me, Eddie, but in terms of ones I've seen, like this is the funniest Hong I've seen just throughout like nonstop laughter. Yeah. You, could, you could give this the wedding crashers DVD review. <laughs> you could slap nonstop laughter. That's you could take that from uh the journalist radio here at extended clip if you look if you go to the berlin directory look up extended clip we're labeled as journalist radio so <laughs> so uh yeah uh non-stop laughs like i said and yeah i mean the kind of like the fragmented uh, like three-part structure of this is not so structuralist but i just kind of like i don't know the the way it's uh, laid out through like these three brief perspectives and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I still need to check out The Woman Who Ran. I, I missed that one. Um, I so got I'm, you. Hell yeah. JT. Yeah, I'm also going to give this one four bullets. I loved it. It was a great time with Hong. And I feel like, I mean, I feel like I've probably seen the least out of the three of us, but still like a fair amount. And it's just interesting to see him devote as much time to like generational difference, which I think is like something that I've seen yeah. from him before but like is really brought to the foreground in this and just like, I don't know, funny the entire time, beautiful. And just like the moments where we see characters who aren't as central, we get a lot of like real intimate beauty that like you wouldn't get from like another director approaching like a drama like this. Like even though we only really see um, Young Ho's father, like for just a little bit, the shot because he does it like twice where uh he is like laying in front of the computer screen with his like he <laughs> uh, head down and just like that moment of him like isolated like him like fucking ignoring his son who's there but surrounded by like multiple phones and just like a little bit of his reflection in the macbook yeah. in front of him it, just uh not a macbook hp oh. pavilion hp desktop pavilion. monitor we don't know what he's rocking with in terms of the cpu okay <laughs> uh, also we should say the father played by kim young ho who has been in a few hong sang su movies uh he was in night and day and ha 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 uh, both classics i mean you ask me about a hong sang su movie i say it's classic yeah it, i that opening segment at the doctor's office is so amazing. He teases out this really like obscured relationship with the receptionist, I guess, who almost treats young ho like a son, you know, and mm -hmm. they love each other and have this beautiful hug while they smoke. And young ho also just started smoking too, which is very funny mm -hmm. uh, as we've seen some characters even make the transition to some electronic smoking in some previous, in some recent Hong movies uh, for, for a young character to just pick up a pack of Stogues is, is such a funny uh, remark in terms of the generational stuff in this movie. Um, <laughs> I, we've said enough. Uh, we'll be right back on extended clip.
또 전화하겠습니다. 제 전자세의 반을 바치겠습니다. 가난한 고원에 맡기겠습니다. 꼭 맡기겠습니다. 약속드립니다. 정말 약속드립니다. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, it's everybody's. I'm gonna go ahead and say everybody's fourth favorite segment. Um, it's the it's the website review corner. Um, you know, I, I I've actually gotten some complaints about like, I guess it's kind of like, uh, uh, like an antitrust law that would refrain me from properly reviewing patreon.com slash extended clip but i'm i'm opening up the private browser so you don't know it's me and i'm saying that my favorite website of the week is patreon.com slash extended clip and uh it's it's so crazy i don't know who these guys are but i paid two dollars a month and i got a bunch of crazy good episodes and we're journalists now so are like we're putting forward some integrity and respect like the weight of that that word people love and respect journalists in this country and (laughs) (laughs) you know i was i I was on the website and (laughs) and you know i was i was like ah what's a good place where i could see three crazy some crazy dudes talk about a guy with six goddamn fucking wives and that and and you know what it on the website it turns out that the extended clip boys had reviewed the classic Tim Allen movie, The Six Wives of Henry LeFay, where Tim Allen has to deal with six wives. Yeah, that is a... Uh, that, that's, that's six too many women. Uh, that, that's right. <laughs> uh, that is our touching tribute to Tubi, our favorite streaming service, the only place where you can watch The Six Wives of Henry LeFay. And we're back on Extended Clip. It's everybody's ugh, every, favorite segment by far after that. Uh, it's Malcolm in the Middle. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm here. Did you watch anything this week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here. I'm with it. I'm at a film festival, so yeah, I watched a movie this week. You watched something on the plane on the way over yeah, here? Yeah, exactly. I watched it on my PSP. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my gr- I took my grandmother to, to Berlin with me. And, uh, you know, on the plane ride over, hunched over my PSP, we watched uh, a nice AVI DVD rip of Deconstructing Harry oh. by Monsieur Woody Allen. And, uh... Now, this Woody guy, you know, they, they have this movie about out about him, and I guess he's been in the news lately. And my grandma's like, oh, why don't we watch that? And I was like, why don't we just go to the source himself? And so, I mean, she wanted to watch it in, like, the way, like, she would just be, like, yelling at the screen defending Woody the whole time. So it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably better just to watch one of his and – mo- and you know what? Not to, you know, be such a grandma's boy, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know – I'm going to filter it through her perspective because when I showed her this movie, she's like, I'd never seen, let alone a Woody Allen movie like this. She said, I'd never seen a movie like this before Damn. to where like they talk so dirty and like they, <laughs> she, she, she actually, um, she, she asked if it was released in theaters cause it was so dirty. Wow. You and, should recommend her the literature of Philip Roth. No. Well, she likes goodbye Columbus or whatever that's called. And I like American pastoral. And uh, I guess Pastor was pretty horny or whatever. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know enough about Roth to get into the Roth elements of Deconstructing Harry. But, I mean, I think this is Woody's funniest movie just because it's, I mean, it's just pitch dark. You know, with, you know, all these vanity projects nowadays, it's it's good to see someone defame themselves, even though uh, he claims this movie isn't about him. But uh, I don't know. Even if it's not ab- about him directly, it is about him. Yeah. And, uh 
I don't know. Just a lot of good one-liners. Well, that, that's what I, I thought about it. It was like, no matter how hard he tries to make a movie not about him, he's always going to make a movie about him. Yeah, exactly. And this one seems to be... Um, I don't know. You could read this from a perspective where it's like this might be one of the most like him yeah. of all time, <laughs> just because because it's uh, you know about a man who takes his uh, you know real life exploits, which are already bad, a lot of cheating and stuff like that, and then you know writes about them, you know f- you know using uh, uh, different character names or whatever, thinly veiling it. And uh, I mean, I don't know. It's obviously you could give the Woodster like, oh, you know, self critique is, you know, it's nothing without action or whatever. But hey, this is it's a funny movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I like to hear. Um, So, yeah, you know, I used to just kind of be like a joking Woody Allen fan, you know, just kind of like make jokes about like, you know, it's like, hey, when's the new Woody coming out? I mean, but now I'm slowly, sincerely becoming a. A Woody Allen fan, which I think is the what a move. great time, <laughs> <laughs> best time to start doing that. <laughs> JT, what about you? Um, well, like I don't know. I've been enjoying my time here in Berlin, and like it's so much different than the United States. Like they like there are no masks here. No one's wearing masks, and like it's weird. So they free. like there's like they like not that like everything's they've surpassed the virus. They just like. Maybe it's fake is what they're saying here in Germany. It's it's weird. So it's like I've been enjoying a lot of pleasures that I can't have back in the fascist United Hedonistic States of America. Um, so I went to the bar and when I was at the bar, they had a silent movie by John Ford playing on the TV. And it's like, what? <laughs> what, kind, what is this just for me? Yeah. That's weird. Um, but it's 1920 just pals. JT's roommates were like, Hey man, can you uh, take the trash out? He's like, I'm fucking in a bar right now. I don't work here. You can't ask me to do that. About to do blow in the bathroom with, uh, Caleb Landry Jones. Why don't you leave me alone roommate? No, I'm at the fucking film festival. I'm in Berlin. I was in Berlin watching Just Pals uh, by John Ford, which like it's a it, Just Pals is a great title for the content of the movie, but it's also like he's saying they're not gay, they're just pals. <laughs> I was like, wondering. I was wondering. I, there's two ways. This was either a friend zone movie or a two guys are close but they're not gay movie. So it's the second. It is. It is that kind of a movie. I did uh, a little writing on Letterboxd about it, and I compared it to Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World. Because it's about um, this town bum named Bim who uh, is played by Buck Jones and he meets this like homeless youth named Bill and they just sort of uh, become thick as thieves together and develop a really close friendship. And like it's weird because it's like a Western sort of but like is kind of like contemporary where they're like cars at the time. It's like it's a weird in between and a lot of the movie the first half is just focusing focusing on like laying the the set of the town and so you meet a bunch of different people and then also just spend a lot of time with bim and bill just becoming friends and like him uh teaching this young boy how to live and it's really touching and just there's one 
scene in particular that's really funny and heartwarming where it's like uh, ultimately the the real prudish women in the town have wrangled bill to like he has to go to school and he's like okay that's probably for the best like you should learn and then the boy is being like bullied because he's a, a homeless simpleton and he doesn't know math and so um bim is outside the window um trying to like like mime him the answers on his fingers of like what the math problem is and of course bim is wrong being a homeless man who doesn't know math he never went to school either and uh it sort of follows the like prudish members of the town trying to split the two apart and get the kid involved in proper society and ultimately there winds up being like uh like a train or not a train, but like a robbery that happens where the two fellows are able to sort of re ingratiate themselves into town. But like after like some really brutality, they like really intense brutality. They almost lynch like BIM um, because they turn against him. And it's just, I don't know. It's a lot of it is a really sort of slow, like aimless wagon master style Ford where it's just enjoying, um, the surrogate fatherhood between uh, these two characters. And it's a beautiful movie. It's my favorite, like, early Ford that I've seen so far. Damn. High praise. Kind of sounds like the kid. Oh. A little bit. I, d- I was really heavily thinking of Chaplin throughout because there is that, like, chilling with a kid vibes. <laughs> chilling with a kid. But we're, they're just pals. <laughs> we'll talk about Petite <laughs> Maman later. <laughs> another another uh, interpretation of the title, Just Pals. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I'm, I'm just friends with this child. <laughs> he, he came up to me and said, you want to be pals. I'm putting him under my wing, all right? Come on. <laughs> I watched a movie this week. Uh, while I was in Berlin, I was like, you know, I, I, I have an aversion to this like mid to high brow European festival trash. And I said, you know what? I just got to give in. I got to watch one of these art house movies, you know? So, uh, I watched a movie by Max Ophels who, uh, you know, I also rewatched one of the movies he made in Hollywood. I watched caught again on the Blu-ray, which looked great. And, uh, it's, it's a really great movie, but it led me to, Watching a movie that he made shortly thereafter in France called La Ronde from 1950, taking place in 1900 in Vienna. Um, Adolf Walbrook plays like this raconteur, this master of ceremonies. And if the ceremony here is cinema, we'll call him, you know, the representative of the director, Max Ophels, and he'll be the MC, the master of cinema. And he guides us through all these like, or not all of these, I guess it's 10 pairings of characters and one character will move on to the next scene and get paired off with someone else and so on and so forth. What links all of these encounters, you may ask? Uh, Sexual intercourse. (laughs) This is a movie strictly for the pimps and players of Vienna in 1900. Uh, it is just about people trying to have sex with each other. Hey, hey, like like Drake said, you know, I only make music for guys who get pussy. So if you don't like it, you might, yeah. But it's like this. You don't get pussy. Yeah. Ophels is able to develop this chemistry between this these actors that's like, this like knowing that's, beyond the innuendos you see in movies of that time and it just fills the entire picture there's this air of like 
I, I can't even call it eroticism because it's still just like a PG foo-foo French movie <laughs> where all the guys who are supposed to be like getting laid all the time are just like, I don't even know, just the most like a fet like uh, Frenchman with funny glasses and hats ever. Sounds but like a lot like now. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I get pussy. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say, it's like if JT was like... Uh, ten times more of a fancy lad. That would be the guys who are just like laying pipe in this movie. Uh, but you know he loves love and he lusts for lust. And for that, I think I uh, I love Max Ophuls. <laughs> it's it's like it's such an insane movie and just so like elegant. All of the camera movement and costume design and set design and the way that he uh, incorporates very unrealistic uh set design for the sake of expression and kind of that like toy box feel that his films seem to exist within uh and within that still having very real emotions at the core of them uh i don't know ofels is a filmmaker that i i just can't wait to watch more of and unlock you know I haven't seen any of his movies, but I want to watch them. Yeah, Caught watch Caught. Yeah, yeah. That, I would love to again. watch that again. Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I just watched that. I'll watch it again. Um, we'll be right back on extended clip. Extended clip, JT, shut the fuck up. <laughs> whoa, whoa. We've all been pinned up in this hotel room together so long, we're getting on each other's nerves. Every 45 I'm, minutes, we a little spat comes out, we throw hands, but it's all good because we're just three, you know, three rowdy boys. We just need to get some steam off. I'm just sitting on the edge of the bed, always picking my teeth and like clipping my toenails and chucking them off at you. I've been taking books out of my backpack and throwing them at JT. <laughs> Every time I get mad at him, I'm not reading my books. I just use them as a weapon. <laughs> it's the only reason I brought these books on the trip. Uh, we're back on extended clip to talk about the scary of 61st, the debut feature film co-written and solely directed by Dasha Nekrasova. What is the scary of 61st. What kind of title is the scary of 61st? Just go, whatever happened to a good haunting or the possession, the scary? I don't know. <laughs> so uh, Addie and Noel uh, move into an apartment that used to be owned by Jeffrey Epstein. Ever heard of this guy? An upper addicted Reddit sleuth played by the podcaster turned auteur takes Noel down an entry level uh, internet rabbit hole of elite pedophilia to seemingly activate the demons that linger in the space from its previous owner. The film uses its premise as kind of a launch pad of stylistic and, I guess, thematic pastiche. Like Tarantino and some others before, almost every scene is indebted to a film in Nekrasova's canon, whether it's Rosemary's Baby, Suspiria, or the film that informs this uh, and is even quoted from multiple times, Eyes Wide Shut. The moments that feel wholly new or original 
unfortunately feel more like New York City indie movies of the 2010s uh, more than any of those kind of genre influences. But frankly, uh, the humor of those moments are some of the strongest points of the film, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Maybe I wasn't expecting it to also be a horror comedy, but it is, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a funny movie. Yeah, I think there's like some like it's interesting because like I liked it. I wasn't like blown away or anything, but like I do think that like sort of ironic twist. Like I don't know. She sees a lot of humor in all mm-hmm. of this stuff, and I think like for someone who herself was very heavy into like Epstein brain mindset, I think is like taking a little bit of a distant step back there and like interrogating like the thought process of conspiracy theory brain mm-hmm. and like I don't know that's interesting and she does it with a lot of humor mm-hmm. and yeah and there's I think there's also like by finding the humor in kind of conspiracy theory brain but also like trying to embrace that and try to like make that you know show up in the narrative and whatnot and you know with Epstein stuff I mean you know it's such a recent news event we kind of I mean there's a lot of talking about Epstein in this movie. I kind of I kind of remember when I I talked about Epstein with other people. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. You know what I mean? So, I yeah, I I do <laughs> this is very kind of a strange thing, but I, yeah, I do kind of uh I, I guess maybe the Epstein stuff is it feels a little recent cuz I do kind of like the dark humor, you know, especially, you know, in certain scenes how like I don't know there's somewhat of a pedophilic spirit haunting the house. I think there's some fun aspects with that but i guess there's kind of a like an epstein-ness that i guess makes it feel i guess maybe not i guess i guess current because i you know you don't want to critique a film for being current because sometimes that could be you know what's interesting about a film it you know captures a certain time and place but i I guess maybe you know i I could also just chalk it up to epstein fatigue you know i I was a little like uncertain about that as well but i feel like the way like She's like grafting Epstein lore onto like I mean obviously like the most famous Giallo but Suspiria mm-hmm. like that and like Giallo throughout like will have a like a the horror mythos of it will be like very loose and you won't be entirely mm-hmm. sure like what the backstory of everything is mm-hmm. and I think taking that with like a real life event like the Epstein scandal and like referencing like specific things that I know about because (laughs) I was really concerned with Epstein stuff feels a little weird but I feel like approaching it like from if, if you didn't know as much about Epstein going into this I think it would feel in that sense like how uh, horror will oftentimes especially if they're going for a more unnatural like stuff uh stuff will have that element of it's like the unexplained like backstory that like is kind of ambiguous. You know, also, and this is maybe not even a fair thing to tag onto the film, but it's like, also, I mean, how do movies get funding? They have a hook, you know what I mean? Does a regular horror, like you say, I'm making a Giallo influenced horror movie or whatever. It's like, I'm making a Giallo influenced horror movie with like about Jeffrey Epstein and his uh, apartment or whatever. It's like, bang, someone's probably going to throw some money in it, get it made. But Mm -hmm. I guess that's not that's that's not criticism. That's yeah, production. Very true. And also all of that stuff is just dealing with the premise itself and not like the actual work that's done in filming. Yes. But before we get into that, um, I guess my problems with the premise itself uh, and not even problems with the premise itself, just the problems with how the premise ends up playing out. And I think it's more indicative of like 
maybe problems with uh, contemporary film on the whole. The first problem I'm going to recommend, not recommend, <laughs> you know, I got some recommendations <laughs> for you, Dasha, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Get out your pen and pad <laughs> and listen up. We're about to educate <clears throat> you. <laughs> Jesus. Step into my office. <laughs> I'm going Fonzie mode. That means it's the toilet. <sighs> So in terms of contemporary filmmaking and doing stuff like the Reddit and YouTube investigations into Epstein, uh, this is something I actually talked about with Spree and also another film Tasha appeared in by the same director of Spree, uh, Wobble Palace. And I, I don't think I mentioned that one on the pod, but and on the pod I mentioned uh, TFW No GF. Uh, by Alex Lee Moyer and all of these have this issue of like kind of stamping themselves in a certain time uh, which I usually hate going toward like dated kind of criticism Um, but online culture moves at such a fast speed that that kind of representation of online culture feels like it's already moved on kind of and maybe Mm -hmm. you are just stamping that moment in time right after it happened you know um but it it doesn't feel as like long lasting as say well this actually leads me into my second problem something like suspiria you know that some messed up stuff was going on in germany uh (laughs) We, we we alluded to it earlier. I mean, yeah. we're here now, and frankly, I can feel it. <laughs> Germany's they, dark past. They did not want my family here. <laughs> That's like boiling under the surface. We talked about that in our Suspiria review, yeah. even, and how a lot of European horror, after we've had a couple, after they had a couple of decades to reckon with uh, World War II and the Holocaust in particular, and then you have something like uh, we'll call Newsperia, which sight unseen I've read, uh, <laughs> literalizes a lot of the the Holocaust connections in Suspiria. Yeah. And this film, you know, I don't know. It literalizes the fact that like this is the thing that haunts this apartment. You yeah. know, like there are so many. Like Malcolm, you said if this was. Yesterday, and I might be misquoting you, but I think yesterday you said if it was about just any other pedophile, it probably would have been a better horror movie. Uh, And I think that vagueness helps because like, yeah, I don't know. It's you're just literalizing a metaphor kind of, Uh, but it's also just the premise of the movie. So I got to just roll with it. That's the thing. I, I, I think I was more able to get on board with that like very contemporary and very online mindset because while there is a specificity to Epstein here I think there is like a relationship to like larger conspiratorial thinking that I think this is just like a hyper focused like example of like I mean especially the fact that like Dasha's character is like constantly like doing drugs and things like that Mm -hmm. I think that like I don't know I think in any good like representation of like getting deep into conspiratorial thinking you need to show that there are like outlying factors that are why people get so obsessed into that and like that's not a whole lot but it does like it's not just a giallo riff and it isn't a straight up horror movie which is kind of what i was expecting and i feel like i might have had a better time with but i like 
the direction she's taking it in and I think ha- is working at something with hi- like doing a hybrid like Giallo and like having the Kubrick eyes wide shut sort of ironic distance where she's kind of laughing about things in it. And very directly tied to Kubrick, yeah. as we said. Yeah. Multiple quotes directly from it also takes place during Christmas time in New York City. And uh, also, I mean, hey, spoiler alert, uh, ends on an exact copy of the letter that was given to Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, uh, you know that letter being given uh, to Dasha's character to, you know, give up on her investigations into Epstein. And I think that's the moment where I feel like it all was a little too literal for me. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, there's humor to be found in literalizing that kind of stuff. Like when the other roommate is rubbing pictures of Prince Andrew on her pussy uh, and pretending to be a little baby or whatever. (laughs) It's like, I guess that's funny. Like if if it's not scary, at least it's funny. But I, I feel like, Yeah, uh, maybe too literal might be my problem with how it invokes both references and, uh, yeah, real events, I guess. (laughs) No, no, yeah, and like, I don't like. I feel like that some of that stuff could work with jokes and stuff like that, but when it comes to like the visual language of the movie, it definitely does. It hurts it. That too. In like a probably the that's probably the worst, you know, because there are shots that are like clearly, you know quotes or at least even approximations mm-hmm. uh and there are more moody sequences but i feel like it kind of has that a24 syndrome uh which is a very blank statement but yeah. i'll define it at least uh, where there are defined images and defined sequences but then every once in a while it just floats into sloppy handheld coverage yeah and there's no yeah. like shot to shot connectivity uh but there are some very impressive images throughout. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, I think, yeah, there's like a, a very calculated aspect to everything that goes on here. And there's none of the freeness that can be felt in a lot, a lot of like Giallo's or just a lot of older horror films in general. It, it does yeah. seem to have, maybe it's references too heavy on mind and less kind of focused on, I don't know, just kind of a, kind of a, yeah, a little bit too much pastiche and a little bit too much of a kind of processing of references, but I, I think you were saying earlier, and something you were complimenting earlier too, JT, about you know her like taking drugs and stuff like that. I feel like maybe some of the character work and like you said, some of the more like independent film aspects are some of the more stronger stuff in this movie. And yeah, I think it's once I don't know, like usually what bothers about me about especially you take maybe like a uh, you know you take you have like these you know micro budget you know quote-unquote Brooklyn movies or I don't know just like a lot of like city apartment movies and usually the dialogue is the worst part and like there are some like maybe like I don't know maybe I groan a little bit at like maybe a too hyper online reference but I don't know there's just like a kind of the candor and like the way people speak to each other there's a lot of funny stuff here and a lot of like the funnier scenes are also um, I think reinforced visually I mean I think the funniest scene that I could think of that you could, I, I don't know why I'm speaking this way, but you could put this in old school. You could put this in wedding crashes. Uh, is when, like, uh, is when uh, the, I've, I don't, I don't know her name. The, the, the one who become who starts masturbating to Prince Philip and whatnot. Yeah. Um, Addie. Addie. Yeah. Her, her character and the sex scene she has with her boyfriend is hilarious where, you know, it's obviously some, it seems like it's going to start out to be a very generic scene actually at the beginning where it's like they're just having very vanilla sex and she kind of like 
spices it up with some, you know, fake noises. And then eventually, uh, you know, uh, uh, possessed by Epstein's spirit or whatever, starts being like, you know, f- like, uh, have sex with me like I'm 13. I was very hesitate, hesitant to, <laughs> to go, go, to go all in on that, on that read. <laughs> Malcolm, like... <laughs> turned his head to the corner of the yeah. room like, ah. when he said that that was, that was the half second i realized it's like oh, i'm gonna have to say that no but that i mean that scene's super funny and like just kind of classically funny in a way that's just you know heavy on the raunch and like i don't know there's kind of just like this distant um shot that's framed by the doorway that uh i don't know yeah it's that i, I, that I love that emphasis. scene as well and i think it goes in like hand in hand with like what you were saying uh, eddie about like the problem of it being too literal and too like referential is that like there are moments like that and like scenes and beats that I really enjoy. And I feel like that in particular is getting to like a yeah. sense, like a sensibility that I feel like I could really appreciate that Dasha has of like being able to tap into something like very fucked up and disturbing, but also like play with the levity there. But I feel like, too much of the voice of this movie is not like her own. And I like, I don't know. I earnestly am curious to see about what other things she directs next and like how uh, an authorial voice emerges because there are like really cool glimmers of that where it's like um, a unique sensibility sort of shows through. And I want like more of that and less like, I don't know, referencing eyes wide shut. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, uh, we don't need to get into all the details. Hey, it's a genre movie. You might actually care about spoilers, Uh, but there's, you know, a real bloodbath of a finale, but it it really invokes a lot of my problems with it in terms of genre. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a ton of blood and, like, uh, fluids within this movie, but, like, you don't even, like, see the knife go into anything. And, like, you, you, you don't get one of those classic giallo shots of, like, fetishizing the knife, you know, catching the reflection in the light or whatever, yeah. anything like that. Not to be too, yeah. you know, I don't want to be one of those fucking forum guys, forum horror guys. Uh, but, like, it's rare that I get on that, like, lame, you know, horror or just, like, genre nerd shit where I'm like, yeah, man, the effects weren't good enough. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it goes, <laughs> like, like... I wish it was gorier, what was? No, I agree. And I think that's, like, what was it that, um, the, the dumbass, like, quote that, like, people were, like, up at, like, were, like, she said Claire Denis, she was influenced by female... Edgelord. Like Edgelord, and Claire we should Denis. say that the question that prompted that uh, included a quote from our colleague Will <laughs> Sloan, <laughs> who referred to her as a uh, female Edgelord d- director, uh, which I feel like film Twitter really ran amok with that response out I, of I mean, out of context. That's entirely besides the point. Sorry, Very, no, I, I just mean, wanted to no, clear it up. No, I'm glad you. I'm glad you gave the full context to it. But I mean, it's just if she is identifying as an Edgelord. I want to see some more edgy, like, fucked up shit. Like, whether it is, like, physically, like, gruesome or, like, the content of, like, the, like, fuck me like I'm 13, like, scene. Like, I Am want... I closing the window before you say that kind of thing? <laughs> I want that. I want to see, like, the fucked up, like, things that kind of make me uncomfortable. That's why I like Giallo and horror like that, is that it's, like, making me uneasy and, mm-hmm. like, f- like implicating me in part of it and i like feeling like that and it doesn't i don't know i wanted it to do more of that but i like 
some of what it is doing. So we'll just get in like with like uh, giallos and stuff because like I guess you know it maybe some are not you know wouldn't be fair and you know maybe you haven't seen as many giallos as us either but like i, I haven't seen yeah that yeah, yeah. I'm but not, I'm yeah not although yeah also i think you could see like maybe four and then like obviously see that she's taking influence from giallo and like what makes those so great is that they're they're usually very like sleek like everything is like runs like you know very smoothly and then they're very severe like that you know they'll, they're not afraid to indulge in that violent imagery and like this movie's really neither sleek or severe you know what i mean it does have it does kind of go for like some of the more erotic elements that are in like giallo films you know it has a little you know lesbian action and stuff mr. like that mr skin report yeah mr skin report the sleaze and you know i mean i you know sleaze is a mode i was comfortable with you know but um yeah. 51 minutes and 35 seconds lesbian action yeah but it, 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 i mean it never it doesn't quite uh sell yeah i mean it doesn't even to say it doesn't sell severity it doesn't even quite go for it so it kind of i don't know you have a lot of like the elements of giallo in terms of like maybe lighting or like uh, you know, sh- shot composition at some times, but it's uh, definitely in the acting. Yeah, as well. in the acting, but like I don't think the tone is quite as you know rock solid as you'd feel in those movies. Mm-hmm. I'm giving this three bullets. I liked it. I'm not in love with this movie, but I think that I don't know. It's like what Dasha is trying to do, and like the style of movies that she's aping are ones that I really love, and. I would like to see where she would take this um, to to something more. Like I think one of my biggest worries going into this was that she was, it was going to be like again, it's like an A twenty four comparison. But I think a lot of the problem with like A twenty four horror movies is they're like overly intellectualizing stuff and like trying to take things like too intensely seriously. And this definitely doesn't do that, which I I loved and she got that part of the sensibility, but. I want to see more of a work that's more uniquely Dasha um, as opposed to something that's uh, like, I don't know, a bag of references. All right. I just got to say it. We've been very casual with this filmmaker. How many other filmmakers are we referencing by first name on this podcast? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Miss Necrosova. Yeah. Director Nectar. <laughs> I, I honestly, with my my goal with like names on here, it's like whatever I can remember is yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm so going with no, what, I just, yeah, I just first started thing. thinking about that like while no, we yeah. were reviewing this. I think it's because she's a podcaster. No, we, yeah. We refer to podcasters by first name yeah, and directors by last. Exactly. That, that too. There's also that going on there. Yeah. Um, you it's know, like how you put movie titles in italics and TV shows and quotes. Yeah, I just, why do they have to make it so goddamn difficult? Um, but uh, because guys like me get off to that shit. Well, yeah, I guess I guess that's why the whole system is set up to get guys like you off. But uh, <laughs> wow, wow, <laughs> you really got his ass there. I'm glad. <laughs> Speaking truth to power here, <laughs> Berlin Nail seventy one. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know what? I've, I I think I originally logged this at two and a half bullets, and then I upped it to three bullets, and it's... I really could go either way on this one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm going to talk through it first before I decide ultimately. But yeah, I mean, like I said, like uh, we've been you know kind of harsh on this movie, pointing out things we don't like, and I think that's just usually we review 
just movies that we just automatically know we're going to be fucking with in a, you know, a little sense. But, you know, I, you know, I thought a good amount of it was funny and that kind of helps patch up some of the, you know, weaker spots in the movie. And yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll watch the next one. Uh, two and a half bullets. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like in terms of like contemporary horror stuff, it's definitely better than here. You know what? If, I mean, if, it's better than most of the Berlin slop we've seen. Well, yeah. Also, not just That's that. True. In terms of contemporary <laughs> horror, you know, listen, director Necrosova, producer, whoever, uh, take this for your poll quote. The scary of 61st makes hereditary look like a piece of garbage yeah i guess yeah we're, we're also we're, we're harsh we're harsh motherfuckers and I, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and an average review from us that's basically five stars from someone else you know i mean hereditary is a piece of garbage so i oh, guess yeah. that just means the scary of 61st is a movie but <laughs> uh, the scary of 61st loads better than hereditary yeah. uh, sight unseen it's better than it comes at night in midsomar <laughs> It comes at night is a fucking goddamn disgrace. You watched that one? I well, I I saw it. I my my parents visited me like I don't know two or three years ago, and my dad likes horror movies. That was the only one out. We I guess it's it's not even a horror movie, but like we went to go see it. We're all like, uh, yeah, that fucking sucked. And then and then we left the theater. It was in the TCL Chinese Theater, and like my dad like went up to a hot dog cart and it's like, Oh, you guys want like, let's all get hot dogs or whatever. I was like, okay, yeah, for sure. And like, I got a hot dog and then my dad and my mom were like, well, we're not going to get a hot dog. So I just had to eat a hot dog in front of them. And I probably wouldn't have got it if it was just like me. <laughs> yeah. I so mean, especially there, like of all the hot dog carts in LA, that's probably one of the more expensive ones is on Hollywood. Yeah. yeah like, right. But yeah, my dad got played for a sucker. <laughs> You can't get hot dogs <laughs> while people are posing with Spider-Man. That's not where yeah. you get your hot dogs. Um, I'm going two bullets on this one. As I said, um, you know, it makes Hereditary just look like the, 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 the diarrhea that I've had because of the long flight over here. Because it, it makes me have problems with my stomach when we travel. Interesting. Yeah. And all this Berlinese food is just fucking with me. <laughs> it's too spicy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They, White people dip French fries in mayo. It's it's too spicy. <laughs> I I keep wanting to say it's not bad, but that would be a two point five. So that means I'm struggling. Like it's almost there. You know, there there are a lot of things I like about it, but I think the things that bug me just bug me too much. And hey, we're pod we're colleagues in this podcasting game. You know, we we got to be respectful. Yeah. yeah, it's like an opposing like or not an opposing mob family, but just like we're all in the <laughs> same the other families. Yeah, exactly. Respect a new, a new target. Now, uh, <laughs> I was gonna say I will admire the the red scare model of getting people to uh, angrily quote tweet you. And that kind of like gets you more popularity. Yeah, we, we should, should be pissing more we're, people we're kinda, off. We're kinda, we're kinda, we're kinda I don't know as many words as them. <laughs> yeah, or at least Anna. We should we should get into neoliberalism. Yeah, if we, we get need into to talk about that. If we could just talk recklessly about politics, it will pe piss people <laughs> off. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the deal with neoliberalism. Yeah. In terms of like a post-structuralist analysis, <laughs> um. Malcolm is now pointing the gun at me, so I'm going to wrap Wait, up here. I, I want to introduce... A, <laughs> you could cut this if you want. I want to introduce a last-second segment to extend a clip. It's called <laughs> Hashtag Money Malcolm. Malcolm's betting corner. I'm, I'm Jim Malcolm. Kramer, and welcome to my world. You need to get in the game. Phones are going to go out of business, and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing.
All right. So before before I came over here, I put on uh, I put five bucks on the the goddamn Sacramento Kings to cover a four point spread, and little do they know, they beat the LeBronless Lakers by three points. Uh, so it turns out that bet hit. I made four four dollars and sixty four cents tonight. I thought that game was at seven thirty. It's already over. Yeah. Ah, oh, fuck. They lost a. God, <laughs> so the Lakers are what, four and a half out of first place now. I mean, but they're they're doing this without they didn't without they, AD, but like they didn't have LeBron tonight. Oh, okay, but uh, so yeah, um, contact me for more betting info. That's all I got to say. Not a, not a, not uh, you know, I, I was really busy the last week with like school stuff and the podcast, and like I didn't watch any basketball. Then I look and it's like the Lakers are like four games out, and it's like what. What happened? They were in, they, they just were in first place like two weeks ago. It's the lake. Don't worry, we're gonna have the Laker Nets final. It's all gonna be fine in the end. Uh, it's the email segment, and you can always reach out to us at extendedclippodcast at gmail And we have one here uh, from Kevin, and it says, "Method to the madness." What's up, extended clip? As someone who loves watching movies, I found that I can spend embarrassingly long time trying to decide what to watch. I've been able to cut down on that searching time a little by focusing on specific directors or movements. However, I was wondering how you guys decide what to throw on. Kevin, a.k.a. G-Wagon from the Discord. Oh, well, hello to G-Wagon from the Discord. I also have spent an embarrassing amount of time um, even looking at just like a small selection of films that I've picked out. You know, like it's... I don't know. I don't. Does it ever get better? I just like I've learned a way. I think. Okay. I just go with my gut. It's like you. You like you have to feel it out. There's some nights where it's like I need to recognize that indecision just means I don't want to watch a movie and I just want to do something else. It's that like happens. You yeah. gotta. You gotta follow your feelings. Sometimes I like picking out movies ahead of time, like one movie. And it's like, oh, tomorrow I'm watching this. And yeah. then I do my shit, whatever I need to in the morning. If I have work that day, if I have school that day, whatever. Uh, and then I'm just looking forward to that movie in particular all day, you know. Yeah. Also, Kevin, a, a little tip if you want, you know, to kind of automate that movie selection process. Start a, a weekly podcast <laughs> in which you have to watch two movies. <laughs> three. Week, or three movies. Yeah. A week. And uh, you'll find that, you know, a lot of decisions will be made for you. But, so true. Um, <laughs> also, yeah, I think I think because I, I think, yeah, I've always had. Well, you know, I don't even really consider this a problem because I feel like I I remember when I first got in, I got into movies just by like instead of like Yahoo had their own version of IMDb. Basically, they had their own database. I remember just being a young boy, just clicking on actors' names and seeing what movies they were in. I'd spend hours online doing that. So, you know, Maybe I've wasted my that. life. Yeah. <laughs> I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. But uh, I'm just always hesitant yeah. on pulling the trigger on something because it's like, what if I pick the wrong movie? Kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I've been watching movies every day for years, and it's like I've watched so many fucking stinkers, and it doesn't matter. Usually, I like watching a bad movie too. Uh, rarely does it like affect my day watching a bad movie. That's like you know, very few times. Petite Maman has pissed me off. I, so I mean, much. I, I still found that to be a pleasant bonding experience between the three. No, of us. that was a. That's true. That's oh, yeah. the communal aspect of the movies. So. And we'll talk about Petite Maman on the next, uh, the next little bonus episode that we're going to drop. I'm not even going to call it a bonus episode. It's just a midweek episode, but it'll have a number and be a full real episode. 
our Berlin review, our one dispatch, our awards, our review of everything else we watched. Um, can't wait to talk to you about it. Yeah, we're doing double days. So, uh, what does that mean? Double days. Well, it means when you. It's kind of like in sports when you you practice in the morning and then you have some time off and then you practice in the two afternoon again. Double days. Yeah. I have never heard double. It means days. I've only yeah. heard two a days. I've heard. I, I've, I've, I've sound pretty. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like kind much of a, the same a, thing. It's kind of a that, 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 no hairs. need to object there. <laughs> <laughs> Zero need. <laughs> Being the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> goddamn same thing. I just thought you were <laughs> talking about Abner Doubleday. <laughs> That's all right. You know, fair enough. Fair enough. People, people. He's been on people's tongues lately. So Double days are just days I get McDoubles. <laughs> Doubleday invented baseball. Two a days are when you practice twice in a day, and a double header is when you play two baseball games in a day. That's I don't think a double day is a thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to disrespect the legacy of Agnes Doubleday or whatever the fuck Agner. is. <laughs> Fucking asshole Doubleday that Eddie loves so much. Yeah, our next episode of Extended Clip will come in a couple days and we'll talk to you about Berlin. Um, bye. <laughs>